0: Here we go, here we go, here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, the Holler Gang reporting to you this afternoon with a very special episode, including a very special guest detailing one of the most, I will say, uncertain topics, uh, one of the most uncertain topics, excuse me, in the world today, um, cryptocurrencies. Brian, what do you have to say? Yeah, we had Anthony Pompliano on. Uh, most people know him as Pomp. Uh, he came on to talk Bitcoin, blockchain, and the future of monetary policy kind of globally, really. Um, we pulled in a ringer and had
1: a nice little co-host guest here. Uh, Aaron, you want to take it away? Sure. So for anybody that's familiar with cryptocurrency or blockchain technology, uh, and even those that are that are not familiar with it, Uh, This is going to be a great resource to learn more. Um, Pomp is probably one of the best guys to turn to for very concise explanations for this stuff. It's a super insightful episode. There's a lot to learn here, and there's going to be a lot of resources at the end so that everybody can kind of try to look into it even more. So hope you enjoy the episode. Okay.
0: Um, Yeah, just go ahead and give everybody a rundown on who you are and kind of an introduction and explain like I'm five of Bitcoin, blockchain, technology, that kind of stuff.
2: For sure. Uh, my name is Anthony Pompliano. Most people know me as Pomp. Uh, I spend uh, about 50% of my time investing uh, in the uh, Bitcoin uh, and crypto industry. Uh, I spend the other 50% of my time uh, creating content and running a, a digital media business. Um, previously uh, built and sold to uh, software companies, worked at uh, Facebook and Snapchat, uh, and uh, had raised uh, and invested about $100 million into uh, the space. Um, and uh, you know, when you think of Bitcoin, uh, it's essentially just a decentralized digital currency. Uh, what that means is it's no different than uh, any other currency uh, that you use on a day-to-day basis. It just happens to be that this one uh, is not owned by or run by a, a central bank, right? kind of a centralized institution. Uh, it's basically run by uh, a code base, um, and no one person or organization owns that or controls it. Uh, and then it's digital, meaning that it's not physical, like a piece of paper, and it's not an electronic Q-sip, uh, which basically is just a super bureaucratic uh, kind of uh, very archaic technology at this point. Uh, it's allowed to be sent anywhere in the world to anyone with an internet connection uh, without asking permission of any bank, any government, uh, or any company, and uh, can be done so very quickly uh, and very inexpensively. And so Bitcoin specifically... Uh, as a kind of decentralized digital currency represents what's likely to be uh, kind of the future of, uh, of currency and money and uh, the global system in this kind of internet economy. So
0: with it not being backed by central banks and stuff like that, that's kind of, at least for like people that we know, that's kind of a turnoff for them. Um, but with, you know, the money printing that's going on, And the, I mean, legitimate devaluation of the dollar, like the reason asset prices are rising is not because these companies are doing so well, it's because it takes more dollars to buy that asset. Um, Do you see, you know, like you were talking with Miami's mayor about putting some of their money into Bitcoin. If that were to happen on like smaller scales and then reach out to the broader range, do you think that would help with adoption for people?
2: Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you got to remember that, uh, you know, in the legacy world, we basically all agreed on a certain set of rules, and the central bankers and elected officials keep changing the rules. So, what they've basically done is they've said, hey, uh, those rules that we all agreed on in the monetary system, we're going to keep changing them. And we're going to change them when we want, how we want, and you have no say. We don't vote on it. We have no uh, way to uh, basically protest or, uh, or push back historically, now people can opt out of the system. Like I said, I don't want to play by those rules. The, these very kind of, um, you know, unpredictable rule changes that you make, I don't want to play by that because you're hurting me. And so when you look at a system like Bitcoin, what happens is everyone has uh, agreed on a set of rules. Those rules are written into code and it can't be changed unless majority of people agree to change the rules. Um, and so it's very unlikely now with literally, you know, 100 plus million people, you uh, having adopted this technology that you're going to be able to get millions and millions of people to all agree to change the rules because people all have said, yes, these are the rules we want to play by. And so you can either choose to continue to play a game where, uh, there is a referee or a rule maker that has complete control. They basically have a dictatorship. They can change the rules whenever they want, however they want. And you just have to bear the brunt of those rule changes. uh, many times, without any sort of uh, education um, on how it's going to affect you. So you're basically left in the dark on top of the rules being changed on how this is going to affect you. And you basically are now put in the position of you have to be a professional investor to be able to navigate that uncertainty and those changes. In this Bitcoin world, none of that happens. It's real simple. Here's the rules. Those rules say that the best way to operate is to just Continue to save in the currency. You don't have to go and do any kinds of um, you know, crazy things. And so I think that what we're starting to see is uh, individuals wanted to adopt the kind of publicly you know auditable rules of Bitcoin, uh, and they started to put that on their balance sheet. Now we're starting to see financial institutions. Uh, so this is everyone from Fidelity on down are saying, hey, maybe we should start to actually put some of our assets into this Bitcoin thing. Then what we're starting to see in part of the conversation with the mayor was we're going to see corporations or small-scale governments start to say, hey, I want to do this. And so it's going to start out with 1%, 2%, 3% of their assets. Uh, but again, how do I hedge some sort of catastrophic event in the uh, legacy world, and play by this new set of digital decentralized rules with Bitcoin. Uh, And then eventually, kind of the next step will be uh, central banks. And you'll literally see the central banks put Bitcoin into their global reserves uh, as a reserve asset. And so I think that it's just a natural progression of technology. It takes time. Uh, There's a lot of kind of chaos, uncertainty, um, and and frankly, uh, kind of FUD along the way. But the conversation with the mayor of Miami is no different than the conversation with the CEO of a corporation, no different than the conversation with the you know, leader of a financial institution, or no different than the conversation with an individual. If you have wealth and you want to protect the purchasing power, you can no longer do that in the legacy system where they change the rules ad hoc without warning uh, in any way that they deem appropriate regardless of what the impact on you is. Instead, you have to go to a system that is fully transparent, that is uh, fully auditable, uh, and the rules will not change on you as long as majority of people still agree to the legacy rules. And so I think that that's just a natural progression that many people want to preserve their purchasing power and store it in Bitcoin.
0: Well, see, you're you know, talking about legacy, uh, that's a good thing. Like legacy media and stuff, they're dying. The, the old ways are changing. It's, I mean that's just the way it is. Um, my father-in-law is a history professor and we were talking about like Native Americans. They had this vast trading network across the entire continent and they traded in like shells. And I mean, that's that was currency. And like currency is kind of based on the governed. Like if a certain amount of people decide we're going to use this currency, it's just a matter of time. It's kind of what you're saying, right?
2: Yeah, look, every single global reserve currency before the dollar rose and fell, right? And the pound is all... like nothing. <laughs> exactly. And and so it doesn't mean that a currency has to go extinct. It just means that the global financial system moves to use some new currency. And so I fundamentally believe that Bitcoin will be that thing at some point in the future. Uh, the key to it all, uh, frankly, is Uh, Less about, um, you know, does that happen in one year or five years? And it's much, much more about the fact that over a very long time horizon, people will choose to uh, allow capital to flow and value to flow to uh, digital sound money. So if you go back, you know, for thousands of years, gold was uh, money. Gold is the analog application of sound money principles. Bitcoin is the digital application of sound money principles. We got off of gold because we basically broke the gold standard uh, in 1971 And it allowed for central banks and elected officials to do all the nonsense they're doing now, where they literally can just create a massive amount of inflation. There is no uh, kind of tethered to uh, actual reality. And what it has caused is it has caused asset inflation bubbles. It has caused massive, massive wealth inequality. And also it has allowed for a system that is just built on sticks. And so we have to go back to sound money principles. There's a lot of people who, uh, in the gold community, who think we're gonna go back to the gold standard. I don't see that happening. Instead, what I see is us transitioning to the digital application of sound money principles, which is Bitcoin. Um, And I think that ultimately, as more and more people realize what this is, they'll begin to transact in it. Whether you're an individual, a corporation, a financial institution, uh, or a government, you are going to eventually realize this is the best store of value uh, and the best uh, protector of my purchasing power And as there's more adoption, you'll get more liquidity. As you get more liquidity, you get more utility. As you get more utility, you get less uh, volatility. And what that then creates is a situation where everyone will hold an asset that is, one, not volatile. Two, is a great protector of your purchasing power. uh, And three, has a superiority when it comes to technology and payments. Uh, And so it kind of becomes a no-brainer. I think we're already there in terms of, like, this is going to happen. It's just a matter of actual execution uh, and and time uh, kind of passing. But, you know, there's plenty of people who haven't realized it yet. And so that's kind of the opportunity for folks who understand this early uh, and kind of wait for this contrarian idea to move to a consensus idea.
1: So when we reach that threshold of widespread adoption, um, I mean, what what is the variation of percentage? Like we have some very harsh uh, volatility right now. So what's it going to come to when it finally gets up to that threshold?
2: Yeah, I mean, if you if you kind of go back, right, in 2017, we were having drawdowns of 30 plus percent. I think I have it five times, even though the asset went up 20x in U.S. dollar price point. Um, in U.S. dollar terms this year so far, the drawdowns have been like 20 percent, right, 20, 25 percent. And so they're less than they were in 2017. Now, we don't have enough information yet to really understand, like, will there be 30 percent drawdowns in the future? Maybe, right? And and it'll invalidate that thesis. But so far, so good based on the information we have today. And you've got to reserve the right to change your opinion if the information changes. Now, with that said, that's all talking about it in U.S. dollar terms, right? If you look at the U.S. dollar, the U.S. dollar has been incredibly volatile, priced in both gold, stocks, or Bitcoin. The U.S. dollar has been one of the worst protectors of your purchasing power against all these different assets. And so if we're going to price Bitcoin in dollars, you would have to make the same argument about pricing the dollar in Bitcoin, for example. And so, you know, the dollar is super volatile when priced in Bitcoin. Now, that's obviously not what people do. People look at it and say, hey, I put $100 in my bank account. $100 is still there. They don't look at it from a price standpoint. They look at it from a purchasing power standpoint. And because you don't see that on a day-to-day, it's not marked by some sort of you know, uh, purchasing power index price moving up or down. They just assume $100 from the bank is $100. Well, same with Bitcoin, right? I choose to denominate my wealth in Bitcoin. I know that that Bitcoin sits there. And I don't care what the US dollar exchange price is. I know what the Bitcoin is. And if you denominate in Bitcoin, one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, just like $1 equals $1. And so I think that we've got to really, really educate people on Uh, kind of getting out of a US dollar uh, kind of pricing uh, mindset, because the same thing could be said about the dollar and every other currency around the world, if they're super volatile and uh, they're not very good stores of value, whereas Bitcoin priced in those assets or or those fiat currencies, yes, it is volatile, but it ends up being a better store of value. And so I think that that's like a key piece here is really understanding the beauty and, and the benefit to pricing assets and pricing wealth in Bitcoin rather than dollars.
0: I was actually going to ask you how sick you are of always having to compare the price of Bitcoin or the value of Bitcoin to U.S. dollar, because one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin.
2: Uh, listen, I I, uh, I love saying that uh, the U.S. dollar has crashed very hard against the uh, the price of Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin continues to accrue value and the dollar continues to depreciate against Bitcoin. Like, seems pretty bad for the people holding dollars. You know, if you look at it from a financial return standpoint, uh, I don't know why all these people keep holding dollars. Now, of course, there's gonna be plenty of people who say, oh, this is a speculative asset, yada, yada, whatever. Uh, but i do think that people are drastically underestimating bitcoin they're drastically underestimating kind of where this thing uh will end up um and you know as bill gates says it's easy to overestimate what will happen in one year uh, but it's uh very easy to also underestimate what will happen in 10 years and i think bitcoin's like the perfect example of that right Is people are always overestimate kind of the progress it'll make in a single year but if you look back over the last decade. I don't think there's very many people who said, you know, in 2010, hey, I bet you by the end of 2020, we're going to be at $40,000. And there's really going to be public companies with Bitcoin on their balance sheet. But, you know, here we are.
1: Yeah. And that but, happens with each market cycle that's happened, right? So is that something that we're going to move away from? Or does the market cycle, based on the having is that always going to be a thing? Is there always going to be these boom and busts in it?
2: Yeah, I think that the boom and bust will definitely happen, just like in any market, right? You know, look, the... Uh, stock market and the traditional economy or legacy uh, financial system should have boom and bust in it as well. The problem is that we've got central bankers and government elected officials that step in, uh, and essentially what they've done is they've tried to remove risk from the market. They say, hey, if there's any sort of market correction uh, or there's any sort of potential market downturn, we are going to step in and we're going to step in with monetary and fiscal stimulus. We're going to prevent those market drawdowns, or we're going to continue to mitigate pain for uh, certain portions of the population. That sounds great in the short term. The problem is that you never actually get the natural market corrections, and therefore we're basically propping up a bunch of zombie you know, nonsense companies that don't deserve to be in business because they're not good companies. Uh, and so naturally, what should happen is during those market drawdowns, those companies should go after business. There should be a reallocation of both uh, intellectual and financial capital. Uh, and then we can allow for the next cycle to be built on top of a stronger foundation. But instead, of what we're doing is we're basically just perpetuating this bubble, and we're saying, look, that market drawdowns are basically illegal. right?" That, that's essentially what the central banks and what the officials have decided, that it is illegal for us to have market uh, – kind of sustained bear markets. Why? Because they have the tools, and they're going to step in. They're going to prop up asset prices. They're going to devalue the dollar, uh, and they're going to, quote, unquote, help people. Well, the problem is that you're not actually helping people. What you're doing instead is you're giving them $2,000, but you're making them poorer. And so what ends up occurring here is that the rich get richer, the poor get poor. You get higher levels of inflation than any official CPI metrics measure. And essentially, if you want to win in this environment, you know, I call it get long and relax. You literally just get long investable assets. doesn't matter if you buy stocks, if you buy real estate, precious metals, Bitcoin, whatever. Just get long investable assets, crack open a beer, sit back in your recliner, and the president, the treasury secretary, the federal reserve, and elected officials are going to make you rich. Right. Like that's how crazy this is right now is they literally are just going to pump asset prices and you don't have to do anything. You just got to look like a genius because you were long in a historic bull market that they literally think can continue forever. Now, as we all know, like that ends at some point. Right. I don't know. By the way, I don't know if that ends this year, next year, or literally they can perpetuate this nonsense for my entire lifetime for another Mm -hmm. 50, 60 years. I have no clue, but I do know that there is a very strong argument to be made that no bubble lasts forever. And so while they are going to take a stab at continuing this forever, uh, I think they'll ultimately be unsuccessful, and I think people are really, really going to uh, benefit if they have an asset that is outside of the kind of legacy financial system, whether that's gold, Bitcoin, or something else.
0: Well, I think it's really interesting that, you know, the world, we're moving towards a more uh, technologically based society, and this seems like a natural type of progression for that kind of tra- those, for transactions to be done digitally. Um, that's why I'm really confused about like people like Schiff. I really like Schiff. I think he's right a lot, but I, the the fact that he is so down on Bitcoin makes no sense to me because he's saying a lot of the right things, but gold is so easily manipulated. You can't really manipulate Bitcoin. There's a ledger. Like you, it's you can't fake it. You can't, you're not going to dig up more. There's not, I mean, when like Elon Musk has people, um, mining an asteroid and they call him and they're like, Hey, you know, we found all these precious metals. He's not going to like send a rocket full of cash to him. He'll satellite wire them some crypto. That makes much more sense in like a technologically advanced society than gold. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, Peter shift is right about the problem and he's wrong about the solution. Yes, Right. And, and he, he is uh, so right about the problem that he gets a lot of people to pay attention and he's dead on, right? And I've said yeah. that to him many, many times. Uh, I agree on the majority of what he says in terms of the problem. Uh, I also agree actually on a version or a nuance of the solution. So we both agree that Sound Money Principles is the solution. The problem is that Peter Schiff thinks that the analog application of Sound Money Principles is the solution. I believe the digital application of Sound Money Principles is the solution. Now, we're both right in the sense that you're, whether you're in the analog application or the digital application, so gold or Bitcoin, you're going to do better than if you were in the legacy financial system, mm-hmm. right? So, so you're kind of directionally correct. The problem is that if you look at the analog versus the digital, the digital is drastically going to outperform the analog application. So Bitcoin will outperform gold. And so that's where I think, you know, he kind of at the very end, right, when he gets to the conclusion, he's actually like 90 percent of the way there. He just the application of the solution is where uh, I think he misses. And again, you know, my opinion doesn't matter. His opinion doesn't matter. look look like in, in the market, right? Bitcoin was up, you know, almost 300 percent last year uh, in 2020. I think gold's up like 25 percent. And so in uh, one of the kind of most historic uh, monetary stimulus experiments in the heart of it, uh, Bitcoin drastically outperformed. Now, of course, that is because it's a smaller market cap asset and takes less dollars to move uh, the asset. But still, if you are holding either gold or Bitcoin, you were better off holding Bitcoin. Right? If you look at gold denominated in Bitcoin, for example, it's only headed one way, and I don't think that's going to reverse. And so I think that people just really got to understand um, you know, that somebody like a Peter Schiff and most of the gold community in general, they've got the problem right. They got the solution uh, at a high level right in terms of that sound money principles. So it's just that the application of the theory, it's not going to be the analog solution. It's going to be the digital uh, solution that I think wins out.
0: Well when um, oh crap, what's it? Berkshire Hathaway, uh, when Buffett sold all of his bank stocks and switched to gold, I was like, okay, that's like that's big. Like that's major big. Um, and he has called, uh, what do you call it Bitcoin was rat poison squared.
2: But like, like they just don't get it, or they don't want they, to get it. They're not financially incentivized to get it right now. Look, yeah. in, in Buffett's case, you know, we're basically asking a guy who's ninety years old who claims he doesn't use the email to understand new yeah. technology. Of course, he's not going to, right? And and he would be the first to say that he's not going to. So I think that you always have to just remember who the messenger is, uh, and you got to look at the financial incentives, right? That, that Warren Buffett does much better if Bitcoin ends up being. A zero and the legacy financial system continues to work now mm-hmm. warren buffett also didn't buy gold warren buffett bought companies that yeah. operate in the gold market so that he can get cash flow from them and so like he's slowly moving and shifting his mindset i don't ever think warren buffett's going to buy gold i don't think he's ever going to buy bitcoin and that's okay like actually when i meet kind of the older really well respected uh kind of financial investors I literally – and it's happened a couple of times uh, where I've had conversations with some very, very well-respected kind of legacy folks, and they don't get it. And all I can't say to myself is that's the disruption opportunity. If everyone got it, there would be no opportunity. So you actually need people who don't understand it. You need people who definitely don't see kind of where we're headed and kind of what the transition is underway, and that's a positive. We should not say – you know, hey, that's a negative thing. It's that is the opportunity. That is where disruption occurs. And so that's, I think, where Warren Buffett falls in. Is he's literally just showing you like that is the opportunity. You're going to disrupt one of the richest people in the world simply because he doesn't understand a technology trend that is occurring that will drastically change the global financial system. Okay, that actually sounds encouraging to me rather than a negative.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the OCC ruling. Um, can you kind of explain that a little bit and the importance of that?
2: Yeah, look, you know Brian Brooks was the uh, the former, I think, general counsel at uh, Coinbase. Basically, you know, was the top legal expert at Coinbase. Uh, he was put in as a temporary head of the office. Uh, of the, uh, I think it was the currency controller, controller of the currency, whatever it is. Um, and so the OCC essentially oversees the federally chartered national banks, um, and their job is to be a regulator, to be and you know kind of oversee the the operations of these businesses. Um, and what he did was he actually didn't even come in and make a ruling necessarily. As much as what he did was he just clarified the existing rules. He said, "Hey, underneath the existing rules, you can hold on to." Uh, Crypto assets or digital assets the same way you can hold any other asset. And so you now have clarity from your regulator that says this. And therefore, um, if you want to engage in those businesses, knock yourself out. Pretty big deal that now all of a sudden banks can point to for their clients and say, hey, the OCC said we could do this. Because historically, a lot of banks wanted to do stuff. They just felt like there wasn't regulatory clarity. So now that there is regulatory clarity uh, in that one instance, now you're starting to see a lot of banks start to play uh, in the space. Some of them are trying to go buy Bitcoin directly. Some of them want to help their clients do that. Some of them want to get into the custody game. Some of them want to get into the trading or OTC markets. Like, There's a bunch of different ways to play it. Everyone's going to play it differently. But the second that you get somebody like the OCC who has direct oversight uh, and regulatory um, kind of superiority to organizations like national banks and they give clarity and say, you can do this. Of course, people are going to go do it. And that's what we're seeing happen.
0: Um, so do you think that there's, you know, Bitcoin, I think everybody in here, here is kind of in agreement that Bitcoin is king, but do you think that there are going to be other successful cryptocurrencies for like, you know, different kinds of applications,
2: um Transaction speed, stuff like that. Uh, so I don't think there'll be other currencies. I think that there will be other crypto assets, right? If you kind of think of it as uh, there's stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities uh, in okay. legacy world, there's four types of assets you can own. Uh, there will be digital stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities in uh, the you know kind of alternative or, or decentralized digital uh, financial system as well. And so, Bitcoin, I think, will be the winner. Uh, when it comes to um, the you know kind of currency uh, bucket and then I think that there will be plenty of digital stocks bonds or commodities that come up over time. Some of that will be legacy assets that simply just get digitized. They go from kind of an electronic qsip world uh, to a digital world. Other assets uh, will be brand new um, and kind of created in this new decentralized digital world. But from a cryptocurrency standpoint, I think Bitcoin's the winner. Uh, And then there's, you know, we'll be winners in the other categories, but that'd be like comparing the dollar to, uh, you know, Apple stock. Like you can't go use Apple stock to pay for things and and all of that. And so uh, I I tend to think that uh, you got to separate out currency versus everything else. So when,
0: and I think that um, COVID, the whole pandemic has kind of allowed for this to happen. I think that the U.S. especially is going to be moving to like a digital dollar. Um, So wouldn't it make I mean, would that not make sense to have that digital dollar backed by a asset like Bitcoin? Like it seems like the writing is so on the wall and I just don't understand the hesitation for some people.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I think in 2019, maybe it was like Q2, Q3 of 2019, uh, I basically went and said, look, I am, uh, you know, pounding the table. We should digitize the dollar. Like That should happen immediately. It's an accessibility game. Once now the currencies are going to all be digitized, uh, there's not going to be a competition at the technology layer. Uh, There's not going to be a competition at the gatekeeper level. It is all going to be a competition at the monetary policy layer. Uh, And so what we have to do is we have to make sure that we are one of the first, if not the first, uh, countries to have a digital currency in the market where anyone with an internet connection can adopt it. And so what I mean by this is if all of a sudden, uh, let's say China is able to get their digital currency out into the world and the U.S. dollar is not digital, now anyone in the world who needs a major world currency can simply go with an internet connection and they can get Chinese currency versus the United States currency. That is a big problem for adoption and accessibility for the United States dollar, and it drastically puts at risk the global reserve status. And so what I think is gonna happen here is there's gonna be kind of a space race. There's gonna be a bunch of superpowers that all race to digitize their currencies first. Uh, They'll all come to market around the same time, maybe within a year or so of each other. Uh, But what is going to occur when we go to this digital currency world is now you and I as citizens, we're no longer gonna live in a single currency uh, environment. So right now I get paid in dollars, I hold dollars uh, and I pay in dollars. I don't transact with any other currency unless I'm going to a different country. But in a world where, with the click of a button, I can now swap between currencies, what is likely to occur is that the friction, as that goes down between switching between these currencies, I now have access to multiple currencies, and therefore I will seek out the best monetary policy. I personally believe that the best monetary policy is Bitcoin, uh, and it will reign supreme. But now if I get paid in dollars, if I get paid in euros, RMBs, or any other currency in the world, and it's digital, with the click of a button, I will be able to accept that currency and immediately transact and uh, and basically swap it into Bitcoin. I will hold Bitcoin as my reserve asset. And then let's say in the United States, if I need to pay my taxes— I can actually just switch back from Bitcoin into dollars and pay my taxes in U.S. dollars. So what it does is it allows for me to have a store of value uh, currency as my reserve asset and protect my purchasing power, but still use a fiat currency to pay the government or for other goods and services if that's what I so choose to do. Now, naturally, that is just a stepping stone to a world where Bitcoin is not only my reserve asset, but it's also the currency in which I transact in. But I think that we are very, very far away from that happening. You know, literally a decade plus uh, until that occurs. And so in a world where you have multiple currencies and the switching cost is removed, you no longer have to only switch currencies by going to the bank or going to the currency exchange or at an airport and get ripped off. Instead, now it's all in a digital format, all on your phone. You can switch in and out. And so technology doesn't matter. Middlemen doesn't matter. Access doesn't matter. It is simply that the currency uh, monetary policy is where the competition plays out. And whether we like to admit it or not, every single fiat currency in the world has got the same monetary policy. Sure, there's a little bit difference here and there around interest rates or quantitative easing or whatever, but they all have the same structure. They're inflationary in nature and they're devalued over time, whereas Bitcoin is the exact opposite. It's a deflationary structure. It's got a disinflationary monetary supply schedule, and it cannot be changed. And so over a long period of time, it actually appreciates in purchasing power. And so when you have something that is completely different and right, that is where – uh, people really, really benefit. And so I think that's what we're watching play out here in real time is everyone's waking up to the fact that all these fiat currencies are the same, but they're the wrong model and there's a better model. And now that accessibility and switching costs goes to zero, uh, you're really going to see kind of capital shift and it'll be positive for those who are holding Bitcoin.
1: So you- in that scenario, it, I guess it wouldn't matter that these government currencies, they're going to be essentially – centralized stable coins would they not be and then also like the there's not going to be a fixed supply of them they can just you know make more like they do with the dollar
2: look it, it is uh, all they're doing with the digital fiat currency is they're changing the technology form factor but they're just putting lipstick on a pig right they're not changing the monetary policy it's still the same monetary policy it's just different technology form factor but the reason why it's important that they do it is because uh, they don't realize what they're doing but they're actually accelerating the adoption of bitcoin when all of a sudden digital dollar, euro, yen, RMB, whatever comes out, what they do is they force everyone to get digital wallets. I mean, you force everyone to get digital wallets. What you're doing is you're actually accelerating the reduction of friction between currencies. Um, and so now that everyone has a digital wallet, now that all the currencies are digital, now people will be allowed to choose in the relatively free market the best monetary policy and Bitcoin will win. And so in some weird way, while governments in the short term and medium term have to save themselves by digitizing their currency so that they can keep up with the pace of innovation on the technology front, they're also at the same time accelerating kind of the demise of the adoption of their currencies, because what they're doing is they're making it um, you know, kind of easier and easier for people to now onboard onto a better monetary policy, which is Bitcoin. And so, short term, you got to do it, but long term, it's actually a bad move. Uh, it's just that, you know, nobody in a political seat ever thinks in the long term. They all think very short term. What can I do today to get reelected again? So, I think it's a foregone conclusion that they're going to create a digital dollar, they're going to accelerate adoption of digital wallets, and then capital will flow to a sound uh, money principled uh, kind of monetary policy of Bitcoin.
1: And that'd be in the next 10 years or so for certain, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think adoption will definitely continue. I think that we definitely see Bitcoin's market cap surpass gold uh, by the end of the 2020s, right? The kind of next nine, 10 years. Um, and, uh, you know, at what point does Bitcoin become a global reserve currency? I don't know. Uh, again, you know, we can overestimate what happened in a year, underestimate it in 10. Does it become a global reserve currency in 10 years? Like, that feels like a pretty big stretch. Uh, 20 years, like, eh, maybe that's not so much of a stretch, right? And so in my lifetime, yeah, I think it happens. But uh, timing that type of stuff is really hard. It's much easier just to kind of directionally point and say, you know, here, here's like the directional arrow of progress, but uh, on a timeline standpoint, then that's a prediction. And I think we know that uh, there's very few people who can kind of accurately predict this stuff, uh, you know, over and over again.
0: Do you have any sort of worry um, for like, retail adoption by the fact that institutions are but like grayscale but like 16,000 last night like is there any kind of worry that the institutions while we need them are actually going to have like maybe some short term harm to the to the space as far as adoption goes
2: no i mean look again it's just The Bitcoiners that hold Bitcoin don't want to sell. Institutions want Bitcoin, and therefore the US dollar price has to appreciate to accommodate everyone. Uh, But the same is true about retail as well. And so whether you're a retail uh, holder, a retail investor, uh, or an institutional holder or investor – uh, you know, this whole saying of like you basically get Bitcoin at the price you deserve is the longer and longer you wait, the more people that want it, the more people that want it means the higher the price they have to pay because there's a certain subset of people who will never sell. Uh and they denominate their wealth in Bitcoin. Uh and so when that occurs, like it just you just see the price go up and up and up, and it's in US dollar terms because that is the exchange rate. What's really important here is that is the rate or the price at which you can exchange dollars for Bitcoin. And what we are seeing is it takes more and more and more dollars to buy one Bitcoin than ever in history. And the reason is because the dollar is being devalued and people are waking up to the fact that Bitcoin has more value than they previously thought. And so as more people wake up to that fact, you're going to see that price continue to appreciate over a very long period of time uh, aggressively uh, until we eventually reach some level of deep penetration in the global population. And so whether you are a retail investor or you're an institution, it frankly doesn't matter who else holds it. Just the fact that more people are waking up and converting dollars into Bitcoin means that if you don't pay attention, educate yourself, understand the risks, do your own research, and, and uh, kind of make your own decisions today, then you're going to be in a really bad position because you're basically just hurting yourself.
0: Can you also explain how Janet Yellen is going to mess like, everything up for the U.S. dollar?
2: I, look, I, I don't think she's going to mess it up. I think she's just going to do what the system's designed to do. Janet Yellen is very well uh, known that you – know, she's basically a career economist, um, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of issues with uh, somebody who basically has spent their entire life in uh, academic theory uh, rather than practice. Uh, she has uh, basically worked as a Federal Reserve, uh, you know, executive or, or, or member uh, for the last like 25 years. I think she became, she went into uh, uh, Federal Reserve uh, kind of operating capacity in like the 1990s, like the 1990s, mm-hmm. and so. When you think about what her viewpoint is, her viewpoint is basically you can use monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, to essentially address unemployment. And by doing that, it's okay to let the dollar become weaker uh, and run higher levels of inflation in order to address that unemployment. Well, great. Janet Yellen is about to become the Treasury Secretary, where she's going to have a lot of influence and a lot of power, and she's coming into an environment with higher levels of unemployment, and she is likely to step in and say, hey, we should weaken the dollar, we should let inflation run high, uh, and we should use monetary and fiscal policy to address this unemployment problem. Well, when she does that, she is going to pump asset prices, along with President-elect Joe Biden, literally to the moon. It does not matter if you are holding stocks, real estate, precious metals, Bitcoin, whatever. Again, it goes back to get long and relax. Uh, If you are long investable assets, you are going to be just fine. And it's because the president-elect, the treasury secretary, the head of the Federal Reserve, and everyone else involved in this process, they are just going to do exactly what they're incentivized to do, which is address the short-term problem uh, and allow the medium-to-long-term problem to be dealt with by somebody else. Uh, And so in the short term, if you're an investor, you're going to get rich. If you hold cash and you're not an investor, you're going to get absolutely decimated. The rich will get richer, the poor will get poorer. It's not a bug in the system. It's actually a feature. The system's working how it's designed. And Janet Yellen is here to save us all. And she's going to shepherd us in this new environment with as much monetary and fiscal stimulus as we possibly need. And her boss, the president of the United States, is going to stand on the sidelines and cheer her on. Cool. I know what I'm going to be doing. And uh, I'm going to be having a pretty easy peace of mind because I'm going to be holding the sound money asset that literally Janet Yellen, the president, uh, there's no individual or uh, organization that can create more of it. So we'll see who, uh, who wins that battle. But, uh, you know, sound money usually wins in those scenarios.
1: So that kind of goes into the regulation issue. So, like, is there a chance that we can just regulate this thing out of existence or efficiency?
2: If the United States wants to do anything, uh, the most aggressive thing that they can do is they could ban ownership. Um, and if they try to do that, you're going to see a lot of people leave the United States. You're going to see a lot of uh, folks uh, and companies leave the United States. Uh, and you're going to see a lot of capital flow outside the United States. And what you're also going to see is you're going to see superpowers around the world, whether it's Russia, China, or somebody else, all wake up to the fact that, hey, here's our opportunity to get off the US dollar system. If the United States is going to ban ownership of an asset that we believe has some level of of uh, kind of uh, you know alternative financial system uh, capability, we're going to all move to that alternative financial system and they're going to start adopting it. We already know that China and Russia are very, very privy to cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology, et cetera. And so I think that there's this global kind of game theory playing out where the United States can't ban ownership because if they ban ownership, they're literally going to accelerate the adoption for other countries that they consider to be their adversaries in an economic uh, perspective. And So instead, what's likely to happen is that the United States is going to do their best to actually hurt innovation. They're going to try to tax it. They're going to try to regulate it. They're going to try to do all this stuff to the companies and the individuals that are transacting, supporting or related to Bitcoin. Problem is, again, that that doesn't solve the problem. You can't shut it down. You can't outlaw it. And if you just want to tax it, that's fine, too. But eventually what you're going to see is you're going to see these zones pop up, right? Where whether it's in a city, a state, a county, whatever, people say, look, we're not going to treat this the way that the federal government treats it. We're going to create these crypto safe havens. So you're already seeing this happen on a regulatory perspective in the state of Wyoming when it comes to banking licenses. You're going to see this start to happen with de minimis exemptions in terms of the amount that you transact in. And you're just going to see states push back against some sort of federal regulation that says, they're going to basically regulate or tax this thing out of existence. And if the states fail, then what you're going to see is people and companies leave the United States and go elsewhere. But people are not going to sit right. Look in Venezuela; people are not going to sit around while you destroy a currency and basically just say, "Oh, whatever." I just, you know, I really like my house. No, they're going to get up, they're going to move, and they're going to go somewhere else. So if the United States wants to play that game, they can do it. I hope that they don't. I hope that they embrace this because the flip side of the argument is the first countries to actually adopt this, to embrace it, to say this is the future and we want to be at the forefront. Those are the people who end up benefiting the most. And so the United States has forever served as this lighthouse uh, house you know, kind of the the light on the hill for innovation, for capitalism, for free markets, for democracy. Uh, And so if we want to continue to serve that role uh, on a global basis, then we better adopt this stuff. We better embrace it and say, we are here to be innovators. We are here to embrace new technology, and we are here to benefit from it. Uh, And if they want to do that, then using something like Bitcoin uh, as a core part of the strategy will be a very smart move, whether it's putting Bitcoin into these uh, Federal Reserve Treasuries, uh, whether it's accepting it as a currency, whether it's saying rather than we're going to regulate and tax it out of existence, we're actually going to remove more regulations. We're going to remove taxation on this asset to drive adoption. Those are the things that I think they'd be better suited to do. But you know, politicians are politicians, and they're going to uh, Again, just do whatever it takes to get reelected uh, next cycle. and so we'll see what happens.
0: We'll see, we're from Kentucky and there was just a bill introduced where there w- they were going to do away with taxing on mining. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of goes with what you were saying where there will be like states or cities that you kind know, of are like crypto hubs. Um, do you, would you see that Because you can pay your taxes in what Ohio in Bitcoin? Um, I think you can in Sweden. So do you see these kind of local government policies or whatever in the case of Sweden, but do you see that as a good thing to help drive adoption and stuff like that?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, again, it's all about uh, basically what we've seen is we've seen individuals are no longer now held to geographic Uh, location. So it used to be that in a kind of analog world, uh, you had to go into the office and where the office physically was located was really important because you had to live within driving distance to get to the office. And once you got into the office, you knew that you wouldn't leave unless you wanted to quit your job. And so there was a ton of friction for you to move anywhere in the world. Now in a digital remote kind of centric world, people can live anywhere in the world. Right, And there's a lot of people who aren't going back to the office. And so when you've got this remote-centric kind of digital world, what happens is governments are going to compete for individuals. Right, I think the mayor of Miami, uh, Francis Suarez, has done a fantastic job saying, look, I'm open for business. If you're an innovator, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're a founder, if you're an investor, come here. I want to make you successful. Tell me what I can do to help you. I will open up all of my resources. I will open up all of my citizens to higher paying jobs, and I will try to encourage innovation. I will do everything in my power as the mayor of the city to make this a place where you can build really valuable companies. That's it, that's all he's done. He hadn't even done that much. He's literally just said it, and he said it over and over and over again. And it is such a low bar to step over Compared to other governments, especially at the local and state level, that he literally is being lauded as like some you know saint. And by the <laughs> way, he's a really smart guy. Like, yeah. I really like him a lot. He, and you're seeing why he's successful because he understands what his job is. His job is not to be the innovator. His job is not to have all the solutions. His job is to incentivize people to move to his city or to incentivize his existing citizens to solve problems. And he does a fantastic job at it. And so the fact that Mayor Suarez is able to literally look like a saint and everyone else looks like the devil tells you everything you need to know, because I think he would even say he's just getting started. Wait till he actually starts taking action on a lot of these ideas. Wait till he starts working hand in hand with the people who are moving here. Right? That's where I think that you really, really start to get these inflection points. And so if that's the bar is literally just saying I'm open for business and I want innovators, I want technologists, I want uh, investors to move to my city and people move because of that, what do you think happens when they actually start to change the rules? Right? They, they haven't changed a single rule in Miami. There's no change to the tax law. There's no change to the property tax law. There's no change to anything. It's simply a politician who is saying, I want you here, and people are moving. What happens when all of a sudden they say we're going to reduce some sort of tax, or we're going to create a sandbox for innovation and, and really start to make progress? Of course, more people are going to move. But that doesn't mean that it has to only happen in one state or one city in the United States. This is going to happen all over the world. And so I think what we're doing is we're basically kicking off a global uh, kind of arms race between these uh, politicians and these jurisdictions on who can incentivize entrepreneurs, innovators, uh, and investors to move to their physical location and operate their digital remote-centric businesses from those locations. We'll see what happens, but it sounds like what Kentucky's doing is pretty smart. If you want more miners to move to your place and create jobs, it's probably a pretty good idea to get rid of the taxes that you levy on those businesses or reduce them. Okay. What else can you do? Right? If you want more people to do X, just change the incentives. Like it's not that hard, right? Show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome. If you change the incentives, you can change the outcome. And I think that's what politicians are realizing they can do uh, in a pretty unique way where there's low friction for people to move between cities.
0: So With, like you know, like the whole digitization and everything in the world, like you said, you know, we're kind of living in a decentralized world. Um, It just makes it just makes a lot of sense to do everything on a digital dollar. Um, But I think a lot of people like me personally, you know, I've got my Bitcoin or whatever. Um, I won't sell it. Um, What about what would you say to somebody that has Bitcoin and they're afraid to transact in it because of the limited supply
2: don't so, transact in it then <laughs> well, but that's, that's what saying.
0: like if it's if we're trying to build this as a global economy is it just going to be a store of value or is it you know will it be major transactions or will there be another sort of you know currency that you do your transactions in
2: Well, I think that's part of it, right, is that what you're going to end up starting to see is you're going to see um, kind of Bitcoin adopted as a store of value first, right? Gold, for example, was a store of value first, and then eventually it transitioned to a store of value and a medium of exchange. Bitcoin's going to do the same thing, store of value first, then eventually medium of exchange as well. Um, And so people just got to remember that uh, there are better things to use to transact in today, right? Better being like, why would you want to spend an asset today? that is likely to drastically appreciate in purchasing power than when you can spend an asset that you have that is likely to depreciate drastically in purchasing power. Of course, you should save the one that's going to appreciate in purchasing power and spend the one that's going to depreciate. And so over time, though, that will change to the fact that Bitcoin basically reaches some level of stability and then people will transact in it and they'll hold it just like dollars are, right? And so I think that we just have to remember, like, you can't look at a snapshot in time and judge uh, an asset based on that snapshot. You have to look at the directional arrow of progress, right? It's like, and I forget who used that term, but I love that term because it's like, where were we, where are we now, and where are we headed? Well, that looks like we're headed from the asset didn't exist to then the asset existed, Then it was a couple of people adopted it. Then a lot more people adopted it. Now the institutions are adopting it. We've officially reached kind of store of value um, kind of success. And so the next step or the continuation of this trend is that it eventually become a medium of exchange. It's going to happen, right? It's just a matter of time. And so I think people just got to remember that, uh, you know, don't judge the asset based on where it is today. Look at the uh, kind of directional arrow of progress. And that's pointing in the direction that Bitcoin will be a store of value and a medium of exchange over time.
0: Do you think the fact that Satoshi is an unknown is good for Bitcoin?
2: It's one of the greatest uh, kind of benefits to the uh, so, the too. asset. I think, uh, yeah, my friend Marty Benny calls it uh, like the immaculate, immaculate conception, right? Yeah. Basically, this idea of uh, we don't know who it is, that means that they can't call anyone into Congress right? They can't, uh, they, they can't go after anybody, they can't arrest anybody. Uh, there's no way to judge, right? There, there's no uh, ability for the media to write an article and says, look at this, you know, left-leaning crazy Democrat, or look at this right-wing, you know, nut uh, who created Bitcoin. No, they just have to say Satoshi Nakamoto. It's a faceless, uh, completely pseudonymous uh, kind of creator, and that allows for it to kind of be shepherded Uh, of this technology and this currency in a way that a uh, kind of individual that we could point at uh, just can't be, right? You know, and, you know, if you look at like Ethereum, the second largest one, uh, there's a lot of people who say Vitalik, and they turn to him when something goes wrong, whether they should or not, right? Like, to be fair to him, that doesn't mean that they should do it. But of course, they turn to him and say, well, what do you think? You're the creator of this project. Um, and, and so I think that that just – it puts a lot of pressure on him uh, and other people who helped him create it, but also it prevents uh, or provides a risk uh, that could potentially um, you know slow down adoption. Now, the big question is just like how important is the pseudonymity of the creator to the overall success of the project? There's a bunch of people who will debate that, but if you look at it from – uh, you know, a government crackdown standpoint. Um, there's a lot more pressure on an individual that's name is known um, that can kind of be called in front of Congress or law enforcement versus a pseudonymous one. So I think that that's part of the beauty of Bitcoin is that nobody knows. I don't want to know.
0: Yeah, I don't either. Uh, I, everybody always, you know, speculates on who it is or whatever. But I think the fact that it's an unknown is very important.
2: Yeah.
1: You think it was made that way by design? Of course. Yeah.
2: I think yeah. whoever created Bitcoin uh thought about it for a very long time and they really, really nailed it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That level of foresight is just amazing, man. Cause here we are ten years later, twelve years later, whatever, and just like yeah. people are still like barely waking up to it. So I I try to do the spiel with all my friends and stuff and like, you know, the usual Ponzi scheme stuff. Like <laughs> I'm trying to find ways to get around it, but like if they're just not on board at this point, it's just hard to it's like, all right, we'll see ya. <laughs>
2: Listen, uh, if they're worried about Ponzi schemes, then you can go send them uh, to look at the Social Security system and a whole <laughs> bunch of other things in the legacy system, right? It's, uh, it, it's pretty funny to, uh, to hear people so worried about it, but they'll gladly participate in uh, the Ponzi schemes that they uh, believe benefit them. And yeah. so I, I tend to think that if that's the argument against Bitcoin, that's just a sign that somebody hasn't done the homework. Uh, right. And I always tell them, I so, said, listen, I'll make you a deal. I'll pay you money. You go read the Bitcoin white paper and you spend 20 hours. I need you to spend 20 hours learning about it. And when you get done, if you still tell me it's worthless and there's no way it's ever going to work, I'll give you 100 bucks. But my guess is that you're going to come back and you're going to say, "How do I buy Bitcoin?" Yeah,
1: that's well, a good approach there.
0: My grandfather, he the he was interested in Bitcoin, and I sent him the white paper, and now like he buys Bitcoin like regularly. And he's yep. you know he's an old
2: guy, but
0: he yep. sees the value of it.
2: Of course. And the beauty is, look, you don't have to make a binary decision. You don't have to decide, hey, I'm either going to put 100% of my money into uh, dollars or dollar-denominated assets or I'm going to put 100% of it into Bitcoin. You can make a decision that says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put uh, 5% into Bitcoin. I'm going to hold everything else normal. If the 5% ends up kind of being my insurance policy, great. I'm glad I did it. If 5% goes to zero, I'm not going to be happy. It's really not going to uh, also, uh, you know, kind of ruin uh, ruin my life or my financial health either. And so I think that that's what people just got to remember is you don't have to make binary decisions. You know, probabilistic thinking is uh, such a superpower uh, that y- you just got to understand, uh, you know, educating yourself, thinking for yourself, being a probabilistic thinker um, and-, and understanding that uh, anything In this world where you're going and saying, uh, I'm 100% certain this thing is going to happen is probably something you should run from. And I think a lot of the people who are detractors to Bitcoin, they say, I have 100% certainty that Bitcoin is not going to work. Okay, thanks. (laughs) Right? Appreciate you creating the market. (laughs)
0: Um, Before we let you go, what are some people or like – what are some things that you can send or send people to to check out to learn more? Um, but obviously, the white paper. Um, anybody that you follow want to, you know, send people their way or anything?
2: Man, there are so many people. Um, <laughs> literally, what I tell people is uh, you should read the white paper, you should read uh, the Bitcoin standard. Uh, uh, one of my partners, uh, Jason Williams, he wrote a book. Uh, I think it's called. Um, Bitcoin, hard money you can't fuck with. I would read that. Um, If you want to uh, understand uh, kind of like what Bitcoin is and why it's important, kind of a summary of a lot of stuff we talked about today. I did this YouTube video. uh, I think it's literally called What is Bitcoin Why is it Important? Um, That uh, has been pretty popular for folks. Uh, I would listen to – there's a bunch of great Bitcoin podcasts. Uh, Tales from the Crypt, uh, is, uh, Marty Bentz. Uh, Steven Lovera has one, uh, What Bitcoin Did, uh, Peter McCormick. Um, there's, uh, a ton of people on Twitter that you could follow and listen to, uh, Lynn Alden, Caitlin Long, Melton Demirs, uh, Preston Pish. um, j- literally I'm gonna, whoever I forgot, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh there's just so many people, Michael Saylor, um. You know, there's so many, so many people that uh, are creating great content. Nick Carter's another one. Uh, Masari, uh, Ryan Selkis. Um, I, I would just go and, uh, and play around on, uh, on Twitter uh, and start searching around for Bitcoin, and you'll stumble across all kinds of great stuff. Very cool. Thanks for coming on, man. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me.